This morning we read from Isaiah 45, verses 1 to 7 and 22 to 25. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel who called you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength to him shall come and be ashamed, all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Thanks, David. Good morning. Happy Reformation Week, whether you knew it or not. Reformation Day is October 31st, same as Halloween. And we celebrate Reformation Day because it was on October 31st that Martin Luther started the Reformation by posting his 95 theses on Twitter and starting an internet troll battle. And he got so many trolls from the Catholic Church that they kicked him out entirely. It's not quite how it happened, but something like that. This weekend, uh, this was a particularly interesting Reformation day because it was the 500th year since the start of the Reformation. Luther started that pre-internet battle on October 31st, 1517. So 2017 is 500 years later. So this was a particularly big uh, Reformation celebration, 500 years for those of us who are Protestant, big deal. So we actually did have a conference in town. I don't know if everybody got to hear about it, but we had a conference in town uh, that celebrated the Reformation. And what the conference did uh, was celebrate Luther and Calvin and then the major theological themes of the Reformation. Our authority is scripture alone. Our salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. And all things work together for God's glory alone. Pretty cool. Our passage today, 
points to God. The whole world is for his glory alone. Nobody else deserves glory. Only God. Uh, I didn't. Some of you got to go to this conference, by the way. I got to go Friday night, but then I didn't get to go Saturday because I was not feeling well. So pray me through the service, I beg you. Uh, hopefully my voice holds out. Just as a reminder of where we are, we're in Isaiah. We've been going through this fall. In the fall, we started with chapter 40, and we've been working through uh, a few significant themes that we've seen. We've talked about the servant of the Lord a few times. Also, God has been telling his people the future. Exile is coming to them, but then God will redeem them out of exile. But the two big themes, if you've been paying attention, have been, one, idols are bad. If you haven't picked that up yet, you haven't been paying attention. And two, God alone, the Lord alone is God. There is no other. And over the next two weeks, we're going to get to focus on those two themes again, just to make sure that we, we get it. This week, we're focusing on the fact that the Lord, Yahweh, is God alone. There is no other. And next week, we'll get to just remind us that idols are bad. Our chapter today, chapter 45, centers around Yahweh's claim that he alone is God, there is no other. This claim shows up six times in 25 verses, uh, and the whole rest of the chapter is making the same point. All the doing that happens in the chapter, Yahweh does. Yahweh knows the future. He's the only one who saves. He created everything. He directs even foreign rulers, not just Israel, but also foreign rulers. And all the nations will come together and worship Yahweh. No matter what else is happening in the world, and no matter what things look like, the Lord God, Yahweh, is the only God. Before we get into the details of the passage, just a quick sketch, a quick outline of this passage. Verses 1 to 8, Yahweh is speaking to Cyrus, a foreign ruler who's going to come about 150 years after Isaiah's writing this down. And what he says is that Cyrus is going to save Israel. I'm going to use Cyrus to rescue you, Israel, my people. In verses 9 to 13, uh, Israel has been complaining about the fact that the Lord is using a foreign king. And so the Lord says in 9 to 13, who are you to complain to me how I save you? Like, knock it off, quit complaining. In 14 to 17, Yahweh and Israel are in discussion. It's all about Israel's good. And the nations, Yahweh says, the nations who did oppress you before, like Egypt, they're going to come in chains, willingly choose to enslave themselves to you because they recognize that the Lord is the only God. So they're going to come worship in Israel because God is so great. Not because Israel is great, just to be clear. And then in 18 to 25, Yahweh is explaining to Israel his plan to use Israel to glorify himself among the nations. So the movement of this chapter is really remarkable. At the beginning of the chapter, uh, Israel is in exile and Yahweh is going to use a foreign leader to save them. Then they're complaining about that. And then God is going to lift them up so that Oppressive nations are going to come and willingly serve Israel. And then Israel will be restored to its rightful place as the location where all the nations come to worship God. So Israel goes from chaos and exile to their proper place as the place where 
all nations, everyone comes to worship. It's really a remarkable turn of events through this chapter. So we're going to look at this together. And as Christians, the very end of the chapter makes this specific, but as Christians coming after Christ, we can see that it's Christ that fulfills God's promises to Israel. All nations come to worship God through and in Jesus the Christ. All right, let's pray and we'll dig in together. Lord, we confess and swear our allegiance that you are the only God. There's nowhere else for us to turn because no one else has life. We might try to look to other gods or to ourselves for life, but all we find there are burdens and more death. We might look to ourselves for life, but we have nothing to give. You alone have life. We pray this morning that you would draw us to you, that you would show us our places in your big plan for creation, and that you would show us yourself in great magnificent strokes. All the glory to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. A bit of background at the beginning of this chapter. Jim did a nice job last week walking us through chapter 44. If you remember, chapter 44 was all about the trial of the idol makers. They don't end up doing very well in this trial. God puts the idol makers on trial. They can't save. The idols can't save. Only God can save. Nothing else in creation, only God. At the end of chapter 44, God starts pointing to this specific future prophecy that is going to come true, again, 150 years out from when Isaiah is writing this down and, and speaking it to Israel. Let me just read verses 27 and 28 of chapter 44. God says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. He says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So 150 years before Cyrus is on the international scene, so Cyrus is not even born yet, unless he lived a lot more than 150 years, which most of us don't. Um, God is, is pointing out, I've got this guy picked out and he is going to fulfill my purposes. So uh, some of you have had a hard time with the history. I've been told that some, some people have had a hard time locating where we are in history. So let me give you a quick acrostic for you. So this history here is as easy as ABC, okay? The time that Isaiah's writing in, the aggressive Assyrians are in charge, A. They're about to be destroyed by the brutal Babylonians, B. A, B. And then they're going to be saved by civilized, celebrated Cyrus. Got it? A, B, C. The aggressive Assyrians is the time when Isaiah's writing. They're going to go into exile under the brutal Babylonians and the temple's going to be destroyed and then it's going to be rebuilt uh, under the direction of civilized Cyrus. So A, B, C. Isaiah's writing at the time of the Assyrians about the Babylonians and then Cyrus and the Persians. In verse 27, it's kind of a, a unclear, but we think maybe a reference to how God is going to use Cyrus says, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Herodotus, Greek historian, tells the story of how Cyrus defeats the Babylonians. He's come to Babylon to, to defeat the Babylonians and take over the Babylonian empire. Again, the Babylonians are brutal people and vicious warriors. He comes to Babylon 
And they fight a little battle, but Cyrus is so dominant that the Babylonians run back into the city. And they feel so safe in their city that they start a party. Because nobody can get into Babylon. The fortress is too strong. So what Cyrus does, I believe inspired by the Lord, he diverts the river Euphrates that runs under the city. He has his men dig new rivers so that the water goes around the city. And he and his men walk under under the wall of the city in the riverbed. Under the riverbed, the dry riverbed. So they they walk under the, the wall of the city. And the Babylonians, again, are so, they feel so safe. They've been throwing a party. They don't even notice that Cyrus and his men have entered the city. Cyrus takes the city without much of a battle at all. So again, this, this prophecy, I will dry up your rivers, is actually how Cyrus accomplishes his task of defeating the Babylonians. And then the Lord names Cyrus, get this, he names him my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose. He's going to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, which is actually what happens. Cyrus gives the money so that the temple and the walls of the city can be rebuilt. So that's, that's the background when we get to 45. 45 verse 1, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. The word anointed there, by the way, is shocking. The word is Mashiach, Messiah. Now, the Lord has just called a foreign pagan ruler who does not worship the Lord, both his shepherd and his Messiah. If you're not shocked by that, Israel would have been. We know they were shocked. Because in verses 9 to 13, that we've already kind of mentioned a little bit, we see that Israel has been complaining about this. Israel says to the Lord, look, you can't, you can't save us by this foreign pagan ruler. So God says to them, verse 9, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Would you say that to your mom? Why why did you give birth to me? Look, you did this the wrong way. It's like, so Israel is saying to the Lord, look, you saved us the the wrong way. You got to save us the right way, the way we want you to save us. It's like uh, last night, Grace brought home some Kleenexes for the girls and so she gave, she gave Lydia, our youngest, a box of Kleenexes so that she could have her own and wouldn't have to share with her sisters. Well, Lydia's response was, I wanted the ones with lotion. If you're parents of little kids, you know this a lot, right? I don't want you to do it that way. I want you to do it the way I wanted you to do it. That's, the way is, that's Israel's response here. I don't want you to save me that way. Save me the way I want to be saved. Instead of that, the Lord uses Cyrus, his anointed, his shepherd. Cyrus defeats Babylon and sets up a benevolent empire. And the reality is, among ancient emperors, Cyrus is among the very best. He is almost universally acknowledged to be a great emperor. Thomas Jefferson looked to him. Alexander the Great tried to model himself on Cyrus. Uh, the, the old Persian regime in Iran, before the Ayatollahs took over, modeled themselves on Cyrus. Cyrus is 
among the ancient historians, he's universally praised. Cyrus sets up a very great empire. And the reason he's universally praised is because he blesses everyone that he takes over. He takes over a nation. The Babylonians, if you're, well, the Assyrians killed everyone. The Babylonians, when they would take over a nation, they would take their leadership and destroy their, their places of worship. Cyrus returned their places of worship, returned their leadership and said, Hey, I just want to have a a good relationship, a good working relationship. So let's make this work well. That's what Cyrus would do. He's universally praised among ancient emperors. And get this. By taking over these nations, Cyrus becomes a blessing to the nations. Does that sound like anybody else? God called Israel and Abraham and his children to be a blessing to the nations. Israel, because of their sin and idolatry, had failed to live up to that role. And so now Cyrus, a pagan king, is serving that role. He is the shepherd, the Lord's shepherd, and the Lord's Messiah. Partly, again, because Israel had failed in their role, but Cyrus can fulfill it. The big picture thing that I want us to see in this is it's not about us, whether we're a blessing. It's not about us, whether we're great. It's about God, right? God can accomplish with whatever tools he uses to, chooses to use. He can accomplish whatever he chooses to accomplish. Israel too often thought it was about them. Look, we're God's chosen people, so we can do whatever we want. God will still use us. And he's teaching his people here, no, that's not true. I can choose to use whatever I want to use. If you don't worship me, the rocks themselves would cry out. I can even use a pagan foreign ruler. But let's be clear, Cyrus doesn't do this by himself. Even though he doesn't acknowledge Yahweh as God, Yahweh is the one doing all the doing. Throughout these verses, Yahweh is the subject of every verb. Yahweh is the one who... Uh, tears down obstacles for Cyrus. He's the one who gives him Babylon. He's the one who makes all of this happen. The Lord says, I'm doing this for you, Cyrus, so that everybody will know that I'm the Lord. So how is it that Cyrus and his success is evidence that the Lord Yahweh is God and there is no other? Well, a couple things. First, And we've said this already. God predicts this 150 years before it happens. That's kind of good evidence that he's the one who's doing the doing. And God wants to show Israel in particular that God can use even foreign leaders. God does not need Israel. God does not need us. It's better for us if we align ourselves with with the Lord. But he can use whatever he wants. He's the one in charge of salvation. Israel is not. As, our, as my friend Dan uh, said uh, at Growth Group, look, if, if God had used a great Israeli, then Israel might have said, hey, look what we can do. But instead, if God uses a great foreign ruler, Israel has to go, well, salvation is not from me. Salvation is from the Lord. Because the Lord names Cyrus as Messiah here in chapter 45, we might want to ask if there are specific ways that Cyrus reveals Jesus to us or points us to Jesus. So I want to name some of those ways. 
Cyrus sets up a great empire that serves most nations, including the people of God. Jesus is right now setting up an even greater empire that will serve all nations. Cyrus is anointed by God to serve an important role in human history by setting God's people free from exile. Jesus is anointed by God to serve the most important role in all of human history by setting God's people free from sin and death. Cyrus is a very uncomfortable savior for Israel. They aren't even sure they want salvation from him. And, interesting note, it's the people who know their Torah best, who know their, their scriptures the best, who are the most uncomfortable with him. Jesus is also a very uncomfortable savior for Israel, and most Israel will reject him in his time. And the leaders who studied and interpreted and knew their Old Testament best, who led the people in their rejection of their own king. It makes me think that what is important for us is to submit ourselves to God's will for us. We may think we know what God must do. The reality is God doesn't need to do any of the things that we want him to do. He anoints people that we like and people that we don't like. And we can't let our understanding of scripture prevent us from following what God is up to. Scripture's purpose is to lead us to God, not to lead us to Scripture or to lead God to conform to us. Scripture is so that we might get to know the God of the universe and submit to him. One of the places I've seen this is we need to learn to honor and submit to rulers that God places over us. For the last eight years, several people were very unhappy with President Obama. And now we're in a season where several people are very unhappy with the President Trump. God calls us, whether we like the ruler or not, to honor that ruler and submit to them. We're not Obama people or Clinton people or Trump people. We're Jesus people. Now, we do that wisely. No other leader must draw our attention from Jesus either because we celebrate them or because we're so afraid of them and what they might accomplish that we, we are worried rather than submitted to Jesus, right? Again, we do this wisely. So we, when a ruler does what God wants and accomplishes God's purposes, we affirm that what they're doing, Right? And when the ruler doesn't, we say, hey, this isn't the way God wants us to go. So we honor and submit by showing, uh, by giving them their proper dignity as image bearers of God and by telling them the truth about themselves. Okay? But we don't need to fear any ruler. But it's not just rulers, right? God often uses people or things to shape us and show off his glory in ways that we don't expect. He might use refugees. He might use people that are super uncomfortable for you. It's my conviction that the evangelical church, if we're serious about standing up in the face of what might be persecution coming down the road, it's my conviction 
that we who are not primarily black churches will need to learn to submit to and learn from our black brothers and sisters. They've done this whole oppression thing for the last few hundred years. They've been doing it. They know how to do this. Whereas if we are majority white churches, we kind of don't. We know how to be in the majority. But if oppression is coming, we're going to have to learn. Speaking of discomfort and, and the gifts that God gives to us, Grace and I have had four pregnancies. Grace has had four pregnancies. I've participated um, in all, all four. Our first, we planned it. We set the time and baby came right when we thought. And we were like, hey, we got this thing down. We're in control of how this all works. Our second pregnancy was a miscarriage. And we're like, oh, we don't have any control. We have no idea what's happening. Third, it took a long time for us to get pregnant. And it was hard. Baby came. And then Grace needed emergency surgery after baby's birth. And then the fourth, we weren't even thinking about trying yet. All of that was, I share all of that to say, look, everyone is a gift. It was just a reminder to us in discomfort and in comfort, everything that we receive from him is a gift. We don't have any control over any of it. We named our fourth, her, her middle name is Joy, our fourth pregnancy. I should say, four pregnancy, three of whom we'd have, we've had the opportunity to parent and get to know. Uh, and we're still waiting to meet the other one. The one, our, our fourth, her middle name was Joy because it was such a gift. It was such a surprising gift. Again, we weren't prepared, but she was a gift to us and is a gift to us. We all have stories like that in our lives, don't we? Where God shows us that he's the one in charge. He does really surprising things and shows off his sovereignty to us. And the question then for us is whether we will submit to his wisdom and love and grace or whether we'll fight against him. And I suggest that it's a lot easier and goes better for us if we submit to him for his glory. Okay, point two on your outline there, the nations in Israel. We've kind of already walked through this. The aggressive Babylonian, the aggressive Assyrians. You can't use the A's if you change the... The aggressive Assyrians are in charge at the time. The brutal Babylonians are coming and Cyrus uh, is coming to, to set the people free. God is going to use Cyrus to give peace and security to Jerusalem and the Israelites. Uh, in staff meeting this week, Steve made the point, God moves Israel from the chaos of sin and exile in this chapter all the way to the proper place, their proper order of the nations, where Israel is first among the people to worship God and everyone else comes in Israel. It's an amazing chapter that way. It moves them all the way through. And in verses 14 to 25, we see... Um, the nations coming to Israel to worship. Again, 14 is an amazing verse. Egypt, who had enslaved Israel, is now coming, choosing chains, because they say, look, there is no other God. God is with you, and there's no one else. We'd rather be in chains so that we can worship God with you than go be by ourselves. It's an amazing reversal. And then at the end of the chapter, 18 to 25, well, we'll get to that in a minute. 
jumping ahead. Our job, just like the nations come to worship in Israel, not because of Israel's greatness, but because of God's greatness, our job as the people of God today is to be less concerned about ourselves, our own cool factor, our own methods for sharing the gospel, and just point people to the great awesomeness of God. He's the point. Our method, our message, they're never going to be good enough. But Jesus, who is God's very word, his son, the perfect and complete radiance of God, the very image of his substance, is the perfect message. As young adult pastor here at Cole, and, and I should explain that a little bit, um, I'm not sure it's been announced yet, but we'll, we'll make this the announcement. Um, the elders have shifted my job description so that my primary role here now is young adult pastor. So pray for me in that role, and I'd love your, your participation in that role as well. But as young adult pastor, I hear from many of you that you feel inadequate for reaching young adults. And you look around and you get a little anxious that we don't have as many young adults as you had hoped. If that's you, then I want you to hear this. If you feel inadequate for reaching out to refugees or millennials or working toward racial reconciliation or whatever, the reality is it's not about us. It's about us pointing to Jesus. He is more than great. He is more than adequate for what we need. None of us are adequate for what he calls us to do. He is more than adequate. He supplies more than what we need. Our role as the people of God is to be the Vanna White to God's Pat Sajak. To be the frame around God's Picasso, right? Our job is just to show off what God is up to. It's not our job to be good enough for anything because we have a God who is greater than everything. I loved hearing from uh, Rod and Kayla where Rod was like, hey, I'm a young guy and I just want to serve. I want to serve. And they just said, okay, here's your chance to serve. I hope we can become that kind of place for young men and women here. Okay, 18 to 25. The end of the passage, Yahweh invites all the refugees of all nations to come and worship him in Israel. Everyone will worship the Lord. And in uh, verse 23 in particular, let me read that one again for us. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. What Isaiah may not have imagined when he wrote this is how God would accomplish that. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 exactly how that happens. It happens because Jesus went to the cross for us. That's how all the nations come to worship the Lord. Every knee bows, every tongue confesses. Jesus died in our place. He fulfills Israel's role and becomes the place where all nations come to worship the Lord. It says, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will swear allegiance to me couple things to say about that. One, Jesus is God. 
Isaiah is making the very strong point here that Yahweh is the Lord and there is no other. No other. And Jesus, in, in Philippians 2, Jesus receives that same worship. Jesus is not just some moral authority for us. He's not just some really good guy. He is those things. But Jesus is God who deserves the same worship that God the Father receives here in Isaiah. He is the second person of the Trinity, God himself. Secondly, on this language of swear allegiance, because Paul changes it in Philippians to confess. Every tongue will swear allegiance in Isaiah. Every tongue will confess in Philippians. So does God expect us to confess or to swear allegiance? Well, first a note on swearing allegiance. The Hebrew word for swear or swear allegiance comes from the word seven. It means to bind oneself seven times to something. Like tying yourself off. As in, there is no way for me to escape the bindings that I bound myself to this person. So if God sinks, I'm sinking with him. But if he goes up, I'm going up too. That's the idea here. So if we swear allegiance to anything but God, if we bind ourselves to anything but God, we're doomed to failure, aren't we? Because everything else fails except God himself. Everything else is going to sink. And again, at the end of chapter 45, all the nations are binding themselves to Yahweh in worship and allegiance because they recognize he's the only firm thing worth binding themselves, worth swearing allegiance to. Again, in Philippians, Paul uses a different verb, one that means to confess. Two things about that. First, Paul never uses an Old Testament quote without having the whole context in mind. So for Paul... He's got in mind the idea of swearing allegiance. And he wants, uh, uh, what he wants to say is they're going to swear allegiance by confession that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord and I swear allegiance to him alone. Second, when Paul says that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, just to be clear, he's making an incredibly dangerous political statement. He's not saying something like we talk about creeds and confessions, but we don't, you know, they kind of matter. As long as I like understand what's being said, it doesn't really matter if my whole life is shaped by that. That's not what Paul is saying. When he says Jesus is Lord, what he means is Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord and Rome is not. Jesus is Lord. The president is not. Jesus is Lord. America is not. Connecting that with Isaiah, it's not enough for us to decide to say that Jesus is Lord or to think it intellectually that Jesus is Lord. We swear allegiance to him. We bind ourselves to him seven times. To him alone and no one else. If your allegiance to any ruler or nation is getting in the way of your allegiance to Jesus... You must give up that allegiance. More than that, if your allegiance to anything keeps you from binding yourself to Jesus and Jesus alone, then you're in danger of idolatry. If you're reliant on something other than Jesus for security or peace, there's a very good chance you have mixed allegiances. 
Isaiah would suggest to us that mixed allegiance is a recipe for disaster. But if we give ourselves over totally to Jesus as Lord, he is a firm foundation, a safe place, a mighty fortress for us. Jesus is Lord. He rules over heaven and earth now. No one else deserves our worship, our submission, or our allegiance. He is Lord, and as he rules in righteousness and strength now, he brings glory to God the Father, the one who deserves all glory. So to wrap up again, God deserves all of the glory, and he will get all glory. Our fears and anxieties and insecurities about our methods and his methods will not prevent him from accomplishing what he intends to accomplish. Though they might prevent it, prevent us from enjoying what he accomplishes. It's much better for us if we just submit to him. In Jesus, we see God's glory on full display. God is a God who suffers with us, who will sacrifice himself for our sakes, who will draw all nations to himself. There just is not another God. He is it. The only savior, the only king, the only one worthy of our worship and allegiance. With Peter in the gospels, we can say, where else can we go? You are the only one who has the words of life. And with the reformers and all God's people throughout history, we can say, soli deo gloria, All the glory belongs to God alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that all glory belongs to you. We are grateful for the ways that you save us. They are not the ways that we would have expected or chosen. But we receive your salvation as a gift. Jesus, we praise you and we thank you that you came for us. You suffered for us. And as God raised you from the dead and raised you above every name, we can worship with you, with all of creation. Lord Jesus, you are Lord. And we bow our knees and confess with our tongues. We swear our our allegiances to you. You are Lord to God's glory. Holy Spirit, we thank you and praise you. Would you continue to shape us as God's people? We love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.